Hello. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Tom Tapino. I'm the chair of the psychology department uh, here at Villanova. And um, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us uh, to help us celebrate the uh, 50th anniversary of our being an academic department. Uh, since the psychology department was established in 1959 to 1960, um, it's grown tremendously, as probably isn't uh, all that surprising. Uh, when we started off, we had a faculty of seven, only three of whom had a doctoral level degree. Uh, today, we've got 18 full-time faculty members, all of whom uh, have their PhDs. Um, very early on uh, in the history of the department, it became the norm that psychology faculty were going to be active, productive researchers, and our faculty uh, has excelled uh, in that regard. Uh, in terms of research productivity, uh, we rank far above the average uh, for non-PhD granting departments. Um, in terms of citations per article, which can be taken as a measure of the scientific impact of, uh, of the research, uh, our department rivals many doctoral granting institutions. Now, when it comes to students, our records don't really indicate uh, how many students we had in the beginning. For one thing, it turns out that although we had a psychology department uh, as of the 1959-1960 academic year, uh, Villanova didn't record uh, degrees uh, as being a psychology major or a biology major, et cetera, until 1970. So we can't go back during that first 10 or so years and find out exactly how many uh, students we graduated. Um, but since we've been recording, uh, we've, uh, we've graduated more than uh, 2,700 uh, undergraduates with degrees in psychology. Uh, and the uh, master's program was founded in 1961. And since then, we've graduated uh, more than 500 students with a master of science degree uh, in psychology. Perhaps the uh, greatest tribute to our department is that many of our alumni and alumni uh, have gone on to enjoy a high level of success uh, in professional psychology, academic psychology, and in a whole host of professions and careers that really aren't psychology at all. Um, for our 50th anniversary, what we wanted to do was to celebrate the achievement of our former students. Uh, so the program we've planned uh, features research talks, for example, by graduates of the department who are currently working in academic and industrial settings. Um, the talks will represent a range of sub-areas in psychology, uh, including um, uh, neuroscience, uh, developmental psychology, clinical psychology, personality, and human factors psychology. Uh, in addition, uh, we'll have a panel discussion later on this afternoon on non-academic careers with a psychology degree. The panelists will again uh, all be uh, uh, graduates of our department who have forged successful <laughs> careers both in and out of psychology, but, but not academic careers. Um, the discussion, this, this panel discussion, uh, is intended to uh, emphasize that psychology is more than just an academic discipline. Uh, it is a, a discipline that prepares students for success in a wide, wide variety 
uh, of careers. So once again, let me thank you for being here. Uh, I hope you enjoy the afternoon. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. And we're working very hard behind the scenes to try to improve the weather for tomorrow. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so with that, we come to uh, our first speaker of the, uh, of the event, uh, and it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our keynote speaker for this afternoon, Dr. Barbara Thies of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Urbana uh, Dr. Thies graduated uh, from Villanova University with her Master of Science degree in 1981. Uh, prior to that, she had earned her bachelor's degree from Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and after leaving Villanova, she uh, earned her PhD in clinical uh, and developmental psychology at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, Dr. Fies's uh, first academic job was at Syracuse University, which is a very nice place, except for its basketball team. Um, while she was there, she achieved the rank of full professor uh, and served as the department chair for the psychology department from the 2001 through 2008. After that, uh, she left Syracuse to accept the position as the Pampered Chef Limited Endowed Chair in Family Resiliency at the University of Illinois. And she also serves as the director uh, of their Family Resiliency Center there. Uh, Dr. Fies is a leading figure in the field of family psychology. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association and is vice president for education uh, for APA's division of family psychology. She serves on numerous editorial boards uh, and currently serves as associate editor for the Journal of Family Psychology. Uh, she's a past associate editor of the Journal of Pediatric Psychology. As you might imagine, uh, Dr. Fies has been a very productive uh, researcher with over 100 publications, including uh, two books and many journal articles and invited chapters. Uh, the focus of her research uh, has been on the way in which family functioning impacts children's health. Uh, and I believe that she's going to talk to us about that uh, today. The title of her talk is The ABCs of Family Mealtimes, Opportunities to Promote Health and Well-Being through evidence, practice, and policy. So please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Barbara Fies. Thank you very much. I truly, truly appreciate um, the invitation here today. I just want to set the record straight. I'm still a Big East fan. Um, and we can quibble later about where the rankings stand for next year. Um, I'm not sure where I fit into the uh, scheme of things here in terms of a, a former uh, Villanova student um, in terms of my trajectory. Um, and maybe that's going to become clear, hopefully, uh, through my talk. Although I do hold um, an academic position, and I have uh, since I received my PhD, my career has not been one uh, that you might call fairly traditional. 
Um, and in fact, my time at Villanova was not one that was particularly traditional. Um, I was fortunate to work with Dr. Blewett and um, learned a lot about language um, and the meaning of language, and that has been a thread throughout my work um, in terms of the importance of communication. Um, so let's get started. Um, and talking about why, are we, why do I study family meal times? Well, it really is an expectable part of family life. Um, I hope to convince you that it is connected uh, to important health outcomes. It's sensitive uh, to ethnic and economic contexts, which is very important as we try to unpack um, health disparities and the, the great economic cost to our country today. Um, it's possible to translate this uh, to interventions um, and a particular interest that I have uh, in my working life today is how this can be connected to public policy. But health is very, very complicated. Um, it's not as, for those of you who are parents or for those of you who are raised by parents, um, it's not enough just to say, eat your vegetables, okay? It doesn't work that simply. So children's health and well-being is embedded within the practices um, that families carry on in their daily life. But the way in which families carry on their routines in their daily life is very much embedded in their socioeconomic context, uh, the resources that they have available to them, which is also embedded in their culture. Um, so the practices that we have in our daily life, the way in which we practice things like mealtime, bedtime, um, celebrations, are very much influenced by the families that we grew up in and the cultural beliefs that we hold. So what I want to talk with you this, about this afternoon is why we study mealtimes in the first place, give you some examples of the health-promoting aspects of family mealtimes, specifically how these uh, practices can reduce anxiety and increase positive health outcomes for children with chronic health conditions, how it may also be a way to uh, prevent unhealthy weight gain in early childhood and prevent childhood obesity, um, talk about some of the common dilemmas and barriers to practicing healthy meal times and end with some application to public policy. So let's start out with some facts because people say, well, people don't eat together. So why are you studying this? Well, I'm here to tell you actually they do. Um, most shared family meal times, first of all, they last between 18 and 20 minutes. We are not talking about elaborate affairs with candelabras on the table, okay? I have seen these, but for most, most families, it's in and out 18 to 20 minutes. 63% um, of families in national surveys report that they eat together, dinner together frequently or always. Families with children under 18 eat together, dinner together frequently or always 77% of the time. And 86% of parents agree that dinner time was the best time for families to get together and talk, okay? So these are powerful opportunities, other than riding in the van, okay, <laughs> um, that families can get together and find out what's going on and to send powerful messages to their children. 
We recently conducted a meta-analysis of studies that uh, have been published in the literature that included over 182,000 children. And what we found is that for families that eat together three or more times a week, um, it, it increases your odds by over 20% that you're likely to eat fruits and vegetables, okay? It increases your risk if you eat together fewer than three times a week for um, obesity by about 12%, for eating disorders by about 20%, and for eating unhealthy foods by about 32%. So this 18 to 20 minutes, three to four times a week, has the potential to affect powerful health outcomes. But there are socioeconomic variations. So if we look at national data sets, we find that families that have less economic resources um, are less likely to practice regular bedtime and meal times, um, particularly when their children are young. But it's not a simple, there's not a simple linear equation, a simple linear effect. This was a study that was done in Chicago, but I can tell you that the same sort of pattern holds true even in Champaign-Urbana, um, that access to healthy foods um, is affected by both income and ethnicity. So for example, if you're an African-American or a Latino living in a low-income neighborhood, you are much more likely to run into a McDonald's than you are into a grocery store that s sells uh, fruits and vegetables, okay? I want you to just sort of store this in the back of your mind in terms of when we start thinking about access to healthy foods, the social and cultural context of mealtimes, and I'll come back to this in a minute. All right, let's think just a little bit about the context of routines and health and why mealtimes may be a good context to promote both healthy eating and emotional health. Um, family routines are sustained family health through an element of planning. So if you're planning ahead, again, not elaborate planning, through planning ahead, through open and direct communication so you know what's going on, a sense of order and predictability, um, and a belief that the challenges in your everyday life are manageable, okay? We all know that when your routines get disrupted, um, if you're highly stressed, think about things, you can't find your car keys, um, you can't remember what time your appointments are, but you find ways to get order back into your life. If your routines are chronically disrupted over time, then managing daily life becomes a stress and a burden. It's hard to stick to a calendar. It's hard to plan ahead. Um, you become strained. Your communications become strained. And life becomes overwhelming. And there are consequences to your health. So let's focus just on mealtime routines. What we've been trying to do is develop a model that gets beyond just the sheer frequency effect of mealtime. So what? If you eat meals together three or four times a week, that doesn't tell us the mechanism or the process by which mealtimes can have health-promoting benefits. Um, 
And we wanted to really focus on ways in which we could look at this from a health disparities model. So how can we better understand the socioeconomic context of mealtimes and look at particular health challenges that might be susceptible to variations in daily routines. So we started out first by looking at children with a chronic health condition and we chose asthma. And we've conducted four studies um, across two different sites in upstate New York and Denver, Colorado. We've studied over 400 families with children between 5 and 12 years of age. Um, about half of them are non-Hispanic and white. Um, about half of them have two or more adults in the household. And about a third of them, their moms have had a high school education or less. Okay, so why did we study asthma? I don't have asthma. Nobody in my family has asthma, so this was not a natural draw. The reason that we chose this is that it's one of the most um, uh, persistent uh, health problems for school-aged children. Um, it affects over 5 million kids in the United States. Um, in a classroom with 30 kids, 3 kids are likely to have asthma in that classroom. Um, it's the leading cause of school absenteeism. Um, it costs a lot of money to take care of it, about $3.2 billion a year. And the comorbidities include anxiety, sleep disturbance, and obesity. Okay? And now I want to be very, very clear. I'm talking about persistent asthma. I'm not talking about exercise-induced asthma. So these are kids that have to take medicine at least twice a day. All right, so we went into families' homes. We set up video cameras. Um, we weren't there, and we recorded their meal times. Okay, the families that we studied ranged in size from two to twelve members. I have seen it all. I'm telling you, <laughs> I have seen families eating in front of the couch, watching television. I have seen families sitting around a table that is smaller than this, and there are eight members there. Um, I have seen families that have dogs running in and out. I have seen a mom talking on two cell phones at one time feeding her children. Okay? <laughs> we can talk more about that later if you'd like. Um, and so for our first pass, we use what we call global coding schemes where we sort of get a general sense about how they manage the meal, emotions, um, how they talk during the meal, um, and how they assign roles. And our model is, is that we felt that the symptoms, the physiological functioning of the children would be related to their anxiety. We know these kids are at risk for anxiety. But it would be mediated, that is the effect would be through how they interacted during mealtime. And so first of all, we find that kids who have anxiety, have this separation anxiety, um, their lung function is worse, they wheeze more, they have shortness of breath, and they have this, this, this tightness um, in their lungs. But we also find that kids who have these heightened sense of, of anxiety, that their mealtime interactions are different. So they're, they're kind of uneven. It's, it's difficult to get the task done. Um, affect is responded to in a less positive way. There's less personal involvement and roles are, are less smoothly assigned. 
But the model is that it's really the mealtime involvement that shows you that pathway between physiological lung functioning and the child's felt feeling of anxiety, rather than that direct line between lung functioning and anxiety. It's really the mealtime involvement that explains the effect. Okay, so just very, very briefly, um, we know that eating three or more times a week um, is associated with markers of health, such as reduced risk for obesity, eating disorders, and increased opportunities for eating healthy foods. And if we look at sort of this sort of general view of how families interact during a meal, um, it may protect, protect children from some of the associated risks of a chronic health condition. But we're still not really drilling down yet to know exactly what's going on during these mealtime interactions. And we haven't really unpacked some of the socioeconomic effects yet. So what we've done is we've gone back and we've created what we call the ABCs of family mealtimes. Um, and this is work that I've done in, in uh, collaboration with the American Psychological Association to think very simply and concretely about what families do during their meals. So they, they're involved in activities, okay, talking on the cell phone, watching television, um, being on the computer, um, but then they're also involved in certain behaviors, like manners, paying attention to manners, controlling behavior. Um, but the thing that is most healthy in a mealtime is when you communicate. Uh, checking in on what happened with the kid uh, during school, uh, talking about whether you're going to get that new puppy or not, uh, talking about the fight on the bus uh, during school. So if you think about what makes a healthy mealtime, is that you should spend very little time in terms of action. In fact, what you should do is turn off that cell phone, turn off the television, um, a little bit of time spend on uh, behavior control, good manners, and a lot of time in positive communication. So what we did is we went back and recoded 200 family meal times second by second and created what we call our phenotype of family meal times. No offense to the very talented neuroscientists in the audience. Um, and so what we could do is we could see the proportion of time that is spent in this, these activities versus behavior control versus communication. And we wanted to apply this model now to look at whether it would predict risk for obesity and layer into that the socioeconomic context. And for those of you who don't follow this, um, we know that lower income women have an increased risk for obesity, going back to that access to healthy foods. Uh, children of minority status have an increased risk uh, for uh, obesity. And if you've got the television on while you're eating, um, there's also an increased risk for obesity. And I'm going to come back and tell you a little bit more about why that may be the case. So this is just our national rates of obesity in the United States um, up through 2004. Some people say it's leveling off. It's not all that great. 
I want to call your attention to this. Two to five-year-olds right now, we're hovering at about 15% of the United States children under the age of five um, are considered obese. So what we find is the amount of time spent at the meal for the children in our sample. Uh, those who had an unhealthy weight, they spent less time at the meal. They also had what we call more of this activity going on with lower education. Moms who had a high school education or less, they spent over half of the time in some kind of activity, talking on the phone, watching television, up and being up and down, and less time um, in positive communication if you were a single adult household. So what we're putting together now is that if you directly observe families during their mealtime, um, that these variations in interaction is associated with, it's not causing it, it's associated with physiological functioning as we tap into lung functioning, it's associated with mental health, it's associated with obesity and other markers of health. And the health promoting features that we see are things like planning ahead, having a sense of control of what's going on, having genuine communication. Again, the communication takes up about 12 minutes. We're not talking long, drawn out, drilling your kids about everything that's going on. And less hubbub, less activity, okay? Less stuff going on in that 15 to 18 minutes. And that there are significant variations by sociodemographic characteristics. So what we've decided to do now is apply this knowledge to different interventions. Um, we think it's very important to tailor these approaches because for those of you that practice your daily routines, um, a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to work. If you send your kids over to your, their neighbor's house for dinner, they're going to come home and say, do you know what they get away with? at your next door neighbor's house, it's not the same, okay? So you have to take into account what your own practices are like um, and try to reinforce those. We've developed some primary care-based approaches to asthma management. I'm not gonna talk about those. I'm gonna talk about our community-based approaches to obesity prevention. Um, Abriendo Caminos is Spanish for clearing the path. Um, and this is a tailored approach um, to preventing childhood obesity in Spanish-speaking families who have recently <coughs> immigrated uh, to the United States. Um, in Champaign-Urbana, we've had a 250% increase um, in Spanish-speaking families, primarily due to the large agricultural community. Um, our objectives are to provide nutrition education promote shared family meal times, and then incorporate uh, physical activity, primarily through folk dancing um, and physical activity that parents used to do when they were in Mexico. Um, so a sample session is we use a phenomenon called mas o menos. So eat a little bit more of healthy grains and a little bit less of unhealthy grains like white bread. 
Um, our physical activity is we do a lot of salsa dancing. Um, we also use a lot of hula hoops, which the kids love. Um, but we have the parents and the children together. We have everybody, we have, we have babies um, and we had grandmas. Um, although the target is five to 12 year old kids. And then we focus on the mealtime ABCs to take action to turn off the television and the cell phone, uh, to focus on communication. We use storytelling cards. We focus very much on the importance of storytelling in uh, Spanish-speaking families. Um, and then working on planning ahead, setting good expectations for behavior, and then thinking before you act, particularly with sibling conflict. So, if all this stuff is so good for you, how come people don't do it? I tried to convince you in the beginning that they do, but there are a lot of obstacles to a healthy meal time uh, that's enjoyable. So we find that actually people spend a lot of time in front of the television eating um, and not necessarily eating together. Um, and eating in front of the television is not a particularly healthy way to eat. In a recent report by the Centers for Disease Control, 46% of the families um, said that they had a television in the area where they ate. Parents of young children say that they turn on the television during meals to avoid having conflict at the table. Um, correlational studies tell us that eating in front of the television reduces consumption of fruits and vegetables. And each hour of additional television viewing increases the prevalence of childhood obesity by 2%. This is not a healthy environment. If you look at television of children's <coughs> programming and what is actually put on children's programming in terms of food advertising, I don't know if you're familiar with slow going well foods. Uh, a slow food is something like cake and donuts um, and highly sweetened foods that you should only eat like on your birthday. Um, a, a go food is like fruits and vegetables, okay? Most advertising directed towards children is in the, uh, is in the slow food. Uh, go foods account for less than 1% of all food advertising to children. You would have to watch 10 hours of television to see one ad that had to do with Go Food. Now, children already watch way too much television, but if you want to put them down in front of a television for 10 hours, um, I think the counterbalance effect is probably going to be detrimental. So, we ask parents. What are the barriers to having a healthy meal together? And by healthy, I mean healthy mentally, uh, so you're not stressed out. And what they told us is that, well, siblings are fighting with each other. Uh, kids are picky about the kind of food they eat. Um, and little kids are having tantrums. And so it's just not really that much fun. Um, also, scheduling difficulties, having to work too much, um, and not getting enough support from their partner. Um, we can talk more about that later, too. Um, for families with 8 to 10-year-olds, you see the same thing, having to plan ahead, scrambling for meals, picky eaters, uh, conflict, um, and their partner not being there. So let's, let's try to put this in perspective. So I told you that a meal lasts between 18 and 20 minutes, and people say we just don't have time to do this. But 
if you put it in the context of how you use time in your day, you're spending 12% of your time in front of television or a computer or your iPhone. If you took just 20 to 30 minutes of that time, it's still less than 1% of the time in your day. And the potential for the health-promoting benefits are huge. If you cut out one television show, one 30-minute television show, you have the opportunity to spend that time with your kids. So we have to give families real solutions to the barriers that they're experiencing. So we have developed public service announcements with support from the Pampered Chef Company. Whoever said easy as pie obviously didn't have my three over for dinner. Making dinner wasn't so much the problem. Making it through dinner was. I felt like I needed super nanny, but what I needed was a plan. Turns out a meal plan is more than just a menu and a grocery list. Still, our plan is pretty simple. We give a 20 minute warning before dinner so the kids can wrap up their playtime. Then about 10 minutes beforehand, we give each person a task, like helping to set the table. And we all practice stop, think, and then talk when we disagree or get stressed out. A real meal plan isn't perfect, but it's made all the difference. Family dinner, kids eat it up. So our intent with these public service announcements is that we have taken evidence uh, based on how to manage sibling conflict, the importance of planning ahead um, in family meal times, and the importance of positive communications. Uh, this is the first one we've developed. We have a sibling conflict one. We have a temper tantrum one. Um, we're hoping next year to develop one on picky eating and work-life stress. So. We now are branching out um, in terms of thinking about taking some of these evidence-based approaches um, in terms of community um, and application to policy, um, in terms of what we can do to promote healthy eating and active living uh, based on strong principles of evidence, but that it's easy for people to use. Uh, we are working closely uh, with uh, child care providers um, and employers to make use of uh, the federally subsidized uh, food programs. So the federal government spends a lot of money on uh, supporting uh, food subsidy. You've heard a lot about school lunch programs probably. Uh, they also spend a lot of money on the child care and adult food program, which is subsidized food for uh, child care programs. So we are now working uh, statewide um, and soon to be nationwide um, with child care centers to promote shared feeding practices that has been shown to reduce the risk for obesity, as well as making alternative choices uh, for young children so you can actually eat an apple rather than drink apple juice, uh, eat whole grains rather than eat white bread, um, and not serve as many corn dogs uh, to young children, which is actually subsidized uh, by the CACFP program. Um, 
And then at the federal level, we're not doing quite as much work in this area, but uh, there are other people who are working in terms of uh, targeted food advertising uh, to young children. We have formed a coalition, a community um, university coalition um, called CU Fit Families in our area. We now have over 60 uh, nonprofit uh, organizations um, as well as the public health department, the parks department, um, about 20 different academic units on campus. Um, and we provide education and uh, public events in our community. This is a picture of Sprouts at the Market um, where we um, went to our local farmers market. Um, we have an undergraduate course uh, called Food and Family where we have engaged people from 11 different disciplines across um, our campus to focus on how to connect food and family in positive ways. At this one, we uh, had an Eat a Rainbow event um, where we targeted uh, child care centers in our community and the children came to the event on a Saturday morning and they had to go around to the different vendors and eat a rainbow of colored uh, fruits. Um, and this is one of our students who's actually an economics major um, interested in uh, studying uh, subsidized food programs. <coughs> we support Safe Routes to School um, and the Walking School Bus, um, which is to get volunteers to uh, promote children walking to school, um, even though uh, it's not always safe in some neighborhoods. Um, and uh, we're actually a national center for the Safe Routes to School program. We also work with our food banks um, and Feeding America to um, work on uh, weekend feeding programs and we are the first place to do an evaluation of the backpack program which some of you might have heard of which is a weekend feeding program uh, to reduce food insecurity and child hunger um, administered through local schools. Uh, this program is highly popular but it has not been evaluated for its effectiveness. Um, and we are working to look at the effectiveness of this program in terms of promoting school attendance, uh, improving children's health, and promoting a better family climate at home. If you would like to learn more about some of our work, um, I've written a social policy report for the Society for Research and Child Development on reclaiming, reclaiming the family table. Um, it outlines many of the things I've talked about here today and some of the actions that you can take on a local level. Um, this is my home, my academic home. It's the Family Resiliency Center. Um, it was endowed by Doris Kelly Christopher, who's the founder of the, public, uh, the Pampered Chef Company. Um, you can see right over here, this is, this is our research home where that public um, service announcement was filmed. It has a fully functioning kitchen in it. Um, we're able to do video recordings, uh, family meal times in there, as well as focus groups. We're just about ready to launch um, our first experimental study of uh, family meal times and psychophysiological reactivity. So I go back to my roots at Villanova. I'm finally going to do experimental work. <laughs> um, this is uh, members of our uh, family meal time. Uh, work. Much of my work is now supported by the Food and Family Program, uh, which is the Christopher Family uh, Foundation 
and we seek to find ways to connect food and family in uh, positive ways through evidence-based programming. So thank you very much. We have time for questions. Uh, yes. Should, um, like, what age should children be uh, for families to start eating together? Or is there like a certain age that, uh, where it's okay for families to stop eating? That's a really good question. Um, usually, um, somewhere between about 18 months and two years of age, um, uh, toddlers can, can stand to eat for about 10 minutes. That's about all you can you can handle, and it's about all parents can usually handle. Um, but it's good to start those practices young, around two to three years of age, um, because then they can be picking up food, um, and they don't have to be, it's not so much the focus on just feeding, so around toddlers. I get the question a lot about adolescents um, eating with their families because you know you get you get a lot of and you can probably many people here can relate to this um, you get a lot of eye rolling like oh god I have to go eat with my parents really um, and so actually in, in national surveys what you find is that many adolescents want to spend more time with their with their parents um, the 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 conflict or the, the challenge typically is after school activities, work um, that gets in the way. Um, so one of the things that, that you can do is find one night a week that everybody that they commit to being together, whether it's on the weekend or it's one night during the week where you don't have those scheduling conflicts. Um, and what you find is that actually teens get a lot of benefit from that parents enjoy it too, um, but it's, it's that forced scheduling that sometimes then builds up that resentment um, that it becomes an obligation rather than something that you look forward to. Yes? Um, I actually have two questions. Uh -huh. um, I was wondering about um, go slow and low. Yeah. careful and read that read the labels yeah <laughs> because even some of those foods have a lot of sugar in them okay so they may be low fat but they have a lot of sugar in them um, so so that's a woe I'm just wondering what, what is 
there's probably no single answer, but I hear this a lot, and um, we've we've talked to a lot of young moms, and um, and I say moms, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but we seem to get more questions from moms than we do from dads. Um, but um, I think this goes back to the to the the barrier that gets identified as getting help from your partner and learning how to ask to get help from your partner. Um, some of the the solutions that that some of the creative solutions that I'm hearing about um, are people forming like cooking clubs um, one day a week, like on the weekend, and then cooking for the week together so that you actually have food available because it is difficult uh, to come home and throw something together, particularly if you haven't been exposed to it before. So there, there are a lot of people who have not been exposed to cooking um, and so it, it feels uncomfortable, it feels like it's a lot of work um, and so if you can learn to cook with other people and then cook for an entire week, um, then you have, I know somebody that cooks for an entire month, that seems that's a lot of planning. Um, but you know, those are some of the ways. Learn how to ask your partner for help and take turns. And then the other thing is not to have such high expectations like, oh God, we have to eat together. Like now I gotta eat together six times a week. No. Um, be real, you know, but look for those opportunities. Yeah. I guess a follow-up to that question is do you have any data on whether having two parents mm. versus having one parent at the meal time mm. makes a substantial yeah. difference? I mean, because it seems that a lot of what you are pointing at, if I understood correctly, is the conversation part. And of yes. course, having two parents would probably yeah. increase the amount of conversation. Right. But do, do you? Can, can have you looked at the data of whether one parent versus two parents makes a difference? You know, that's that's a that's a complicated question because um, for one thing, um, it could be confounded by education and socioeconomic status. So much of the data that we have, if you look at a single parent family. Oftentimes, those are families that have a lower education level and a lower economic status. But that doesn't, and so there, there's a lot of, of um, issues that can affect the quality of the meal that, that are economic pressures. But having one or more adults at the table is a different question because the quality of the conversation um, could actually be just as good if it's one person versus having two people. Um, there was a, a study done, oh, it was about 15 years ago, that actually looked at the amount of time spent having one parent versus two parents. And if you had one parent at the table, actually there was more time spent directed to the child if you had one parent than if you had two. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard to untangle the way that we've set up the studies that so many times it's confounded with these socioeconomic <coughs> features. So you'd have to do a good controlled experiment, right? You have one parent and you have two. Yeah. You'll have yeah. a nice building. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a nice building, and you have people that give you the money to I go, go to it. I have to go home to have dinner with the kids. So. Yes, <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. Yes, There, um, there's a, Jean Brody has done some interesting work um, uh, with some high-risk um, uh, African-American families in the South. And he hasn't looked at, at meal times per se. He's looked <coughs> primarily at family routines um, and found that for boys, there's a protective effect. Um, so the more highly, the, the more routines, that the families practice, particularly in single parent families, then the boys do better in terms of academic achievement. We haven't looked too much at academic achievement. Yes? Um, with, with regard to picky eating, mm -hmm. um, recently there was a report that picky eating will be added to the DSM-5 as a psychological disorder. Uh, and I was wondering what your opinion was on that. You know, picky eating is getting a lot of attention these days, and I work with some really wonderful nutrition scientists who have taught me a lot about picky eating. Um, having what, what they call food jags um, is very normal, particularly for like preschool age kids. Um, and so, you know, sometimes kids will only eat white food. And then the next week, I'm only going to eat mushy food. And then the next week, I'm only going to eat food that has sharp points on it. I mean, you know, this is, I remember my son, I mean, for a while, he only had three basic food groups. It was yogurt, <coughs> rice-a-roni, and hot dogs. Not the healthiest of all foods, but hey, you know, he's fine. <laughs> so, you know, I think that the, there are, we, I, we have seen some, some families that have come to us that have sort of extremes that you know on a very very extreme end but there's usually some something else that's going on other than just that but it's very very normal for kids to like I'm gonna try this this week and that next week and so for we've been working with child care providers around this issue and trying to get them say well just introduce one different food a week don't introduce six different foods in one week introduce one different food and just try to get them to try it but don't force it that's the worst thing you could ever ever do yes um. I know you had mentioned that families who watch television um, over dinner typically eat less fruits and vegetables. Yep. Do you think, I was wondering what you found that reason was, or if that had anything to do with advertising constantly being focused around you know, fruits and vegetable food products? The, uh, Brian Wass, Juan Sinka at Cornell has done some interesting work on this, um, and part of it has to do with what's advertised during regular mealtime hours, and you just might want to pay attention to that. It's like, oh, I didn't know I wanted a Big Mac right now. Mm, yeah, those french fries look really good. I didn't know I wanted that. So what happens is that you, you get cued, and then you want to go out and eat. I worked for it. I had a fellowship with an advertising company one summer, um, and I was on the KFC and the, and the Lunchables accounts. Um, and it was very, very interesting. Um, these are brilliant people. Really, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, no, no, no. Really, they're very, very creative. Really, really brilliant people, but they know how to get under your skin. Um, and so the the theory is is that 
you're exposed to that food advertising during the meal that makes you want to go out and get that food. Um, and so it's, it, it's sort of like a vicious cycle of, of like, I'm going to go get that Big Mac because now I really want it. Yes? This touches back to what you were saying about um, adolescence or as your kids get older mm -hmm. and the availability of time to mm -hmm. have them eat together. One of the things I was wondering, have you ever thought of establishing like with schools or other kind of community-based programs an hour for dinner, like mm -hmm. so no school activities? Because I think one of the biggest constraints is you have to get to soccer, you, you this one has lacrosse, this one, yeah. so finding that 20 minutes yeah. is is after bedtime, is that 20 yeah. minutes of that, you know, pie that you said is available. Right. So if it were the case that there was, even if it was a little earlier for some people, 5.30 to 6.30, where nobody can schedule lacrosse, blah, yeah. blah, 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 then you, I think you might have families who say, even find difficult working parents who mm -hmm. find it difficult to say, I'll get home from 5.30 to 6.30, and then 6.30 I'll go back, or I'll do my work after that period. Yeah. Is there any... Bill Dotery's tried this. Uh, Bill Dotery's at University of Minnesota, um, and he's tried to work with entire communities around that. And there's been some success. You also get a lot of pushback. Get a lot of pushback. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, what if you live in a household with like a lot of conflict, like with establishing a family mealtime, have the same benefits? That is a beautiful question. Yeah, yeah. The the question is, what if you live in a household with a lot of conflict? Would you go out and establish family meal times? No. Okay. And now I'll tell you why. Um, so what I mentioned, I said I've seen I've seen a lot on these meal times, and so one of the ones we saw was a woman that. This girl was trying so hard to have a normal meal time. She's asking, should we say grace? And the mom said, I don't believe in that stuff. And then the girl said, uh, she tried to work with the mom about, I'm going to go, with, it's a fundraising event for school. Who can I go ask to buy, you know, to sell, I don't know, candy, something, whatever it was. And she says, I think I'm going to go ask my cousin. She just got some money from my aunt. And she goes, why'd she get money from your aunt? You know, I mean, it was just a very, very harsh um, interaction. At one point, the mom, oh, and Judge Judy's on in the background, by the way. Um, and she's spending more time watching Judge Judy. There are three televisions on at all time in this household. There are two people that live there. Um, and at one point, the mom gets up. She picks up a knife that she's cut the sandwiches with, and she flings it across the kitchen into the sink, and the girl's sitting right there. Okay. I don't think that was a healthy interaction. <laughs> I am a clinical psychologist. But um, so I think in, in families where there have, there potentially one, there's been a lot of trauma, where there's been a lot of conflict, where there hasn't been a lot of experience in the past of close personal interactions. I don't think mealtime is the place you start. For, to have good regular routines. I would actually start with ones that's, that, are, that have less time involved. I would start with young kids' bedtime routines. 
because I think that mealtimes are so powerful, they're so emotionally charged. If there's a lot of conflict in the family and you don't have the tools to, ma to manage that negative conflict, they have the potential to explode. So I think I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes? Um, going off that last story you gave, uh -huh. how do we know that um, communication is truly the beneficial thing that makes them better, that they, they feel better about it? And it's not the fact that the parents who spend the time communicate with their children are also investing in their children and they also care more about what they want their children to eat. Could it also be that the kids who don't mind, the parents who don't mind letting their kids watch TV also don't mind if they eat Lunchables and all that crap? That's true. That's true. It's a very good question um, for those who didn't hear it. How do we know that this is like the, the key ingredient, right? I don't know that. Okay, I mean, I can do I can do some fancy statistical modeling. Okay, and I've done that. Take out general family functioning, and this still has an effect. Okay, that's not a very satisfactory answer from from my point. Um, the I don't know really that this is like the litmus. I don't know that this is the essential ingredient. What I do know is that this is something that makes sense to families. It's something that they can do, and it's something that they're able to craft in their own unique way um, that's meaningful for them. So it's easier in some ways to get them to incorporate this into their daily life than it is for me to say, you need to eat four fruits and vegetables a day. So it, gives, it, it provides a context to then do other things like promoting healthy communication, healthy eating, resolving conflict, um, teaching good sibling uh, management techniques. Yes? Yes, uh, uh, three major food groups uh, I'm considering giving up. <laughs> scotch and steak. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which would you recommend? Drop it. <laughs> wow. Gee, as somebody who works with public health, I'd say cigarettes. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Barbara. Sure.